I just don't know what to do. What do you mean? Like, what do we say? I don't know. Introduce yourself. You introduce yourself. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Hello. Hello. Welcome to our podcast. True Crimes and Storytimes. I'm Michelle. And I'm Kirsten. And today is part two of the Anthrax Letters. Less of a biology lesson today, so this is the part where it gets interesting. The last one was some background information. Yeah, we're still going to have a little bit of background information at the beginning of this one, but we're really going to get into the investigation. Okay. So, I just want to say before we get started, yeah, when we were doing the intro, Mm-hmm. And I said true crimes and story times. Mm-hmm. In my head, I thought I said true times and story crimes. <laughs> that's hilarious. <laughs> and so that's why, like, I looked over at you. I was like, "Did I say that right?" <laughs> yeah, you said it right. Okay. Also, um, guys, if you are listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, please leave us a review. Like, we a, really appreciate like an it. honest review. Yeah. Like, we really want to know what you guys think. Yeah. We really do. Do we need better mics? Do we need to be louder? Do we need to be quieter? What What do we need to do? We have some constructive criticism. Yeah, constructive criticism it though. A lot. Constructive criticism though. Not yeah, bullying. don't be a dick. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just kidding. No, don't be a dick. <laughs> okay, so let's hop into this then. Let's get on into it. So. Where we left off, we were talking about a small particle chemistry expert stating something about the silica in the anthrax and how it wasn't accidental that it was in there. Like okay. somebody would have had to put somebody it in Somebody put it in there. It yep. was not an accident. So scientists at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory conducted experiments in an attempt to determine if the amount of silicon in the growth medium was the controlling factor which caused silicon to accumulate inside a spore's natural coat. So, basically just saying, was it inside the spore while it was, Mm -hmm. like, naturally? Like, Mm -hmm. you know. So, these scientists tried 56 different experiments, and they kept adding more and more uh, silicon to whatever they were testing it on. Mm -hmm. Um, And all of their results were far below the 1.4% level of the attack anthrax. Some as low as 0.001%. So, They were having a hard time matching it. Like, matching how much silicon was in the original anthrax. Whoever added it, whoever made it, added a lot of silicon. Yeah, basically. Okay. So, the conclusion of this little experiment was... It's not a little experiment. That was not insulting. So, the conclusion of this experiment in general... (laughs) was that something other than the level of silicon controlled how much silicon was absorbed by spores. So, Richard O. Spurzel, a microbiologist who led the United Nations Biological Weapons Inspections of Iraq, wrote that the anthrax use could not have come from the lab where Bruce Ivins worked, and we will get more into him a little bit later. Okay. So, Richard Spurzel also said he remained skeptical of the Bureau's argument despite the new evidence presented on August 18, 2008, in an unusual FBI briefing for reporters. He questioned the FBI's claim that the powder was less than military grade, in part of because of the high presence of high levels of silica. And the FBI had been unable to reproduce the attack spores with the high levels of silica as well. The FBI attributed the president's... President's? President's? No. Back up. The FBI attributed the presence of high silica levels to natural variability. So, this conclusion of the FBI contradicted its statements at an earlier point in the investigation when they had stated, based on the silicon content, that the anthrax was weaponized, a step that made the powder more airy and required special scientific know-how. So, somebody would have had to know how, what they were doing with this. Right. Like, doing it on purpose. Yeah. So, if there is that much silicon, it had to have been added, stated Jeffrey Adamovitz. That's a hard one. Adamovitz? Oh, yeah, that works. Okay. 
who supervised Bruce Ivan's work at Fort Derrick. And like I said, we're going to get into Bruce Ivan's here in just a few minutes. So okay. stay with me, people. So basically, um, Jeffrey explained that the silicon in the anthrax attack could have been added via a large fermenter, which um, some of these facilities use, but they didn't use a fermenter to grow the anthrax at USAMRIID, and we did not have the capability to add silicon compounds to anthrax spores. Okay. And Bruce Ivins, this man that we keep talking about, had neither the skills nor the means to attach silicon to anthrax pores. Okay. Anthrax pores? Anthrax pores. I can't talk to Richard Spurzel explained that the Fort Derrick facility did not handle anthrax in powdered form. I don't think there's anyone there who would have the foggiest idea how to do it. Hmm. So, now we're going to go into the investigation and get more into this Bruce Ivins guy as well. So they still don't really know who who's done it. Nope. They have not a lick of an idea. Nope. On who's done it. They've done all these tests. Still nothing. And they're still going back and forth whether or not it was weaponized or not weaponized. Yep, pretty whether much. Whether or not the silicon was added or not. Who added it? Who has the capabilities to add it? Yeah. So it's still, they have no answers. Nope. Right now. <laughs> a reward for information totaling $2.5 million was being offered by the FBI, U.S. Postal Service, and Advo, Inc. At this nice. time. So, authorities traveled to six continents, interviewing over 9,000 people, and conducted 67 searches and issued over 6,000 subpoenas. Hundreds of FBI personnel worked the case at the outset, struggling to discern whether the September 11th Al-Qaeda attacks and the anthrax murders were connected before eventually concluding they were not. Why wouldn't they be, though? I mean... Because... The anthrax, like the 9-11 was actually Al-Qaeda. And it was foreign people. And this isn't. Yeah. They're thinking this isn't. This is within uh, the U.S. Like, gotcha. Those okay. people came over and attacked us. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like Trojan horse style. Yeah. Like this is from people actually in the U.S. Okay. So, in September 2006, there were still 17 FBI agents and 10 postal inspectors assigned to the case, including FBI Special Agent C. Frank Figluzzi, Figluzzi, who was the on-scene commander of the evidence recovery efforts. The FBI and the CDC both gave permission for Iowa State University to destroy the Iowa anthrax archive and the archive was destroyed on october 10th and 11th of 2001 october 10th is my daughter's birthday yes it is <laughs> the fbi and cdc investigation was hampered by the destruction of a large collection of anthrax spores collected over more than seven decades and kept in more than a hundred vials at iowa state university ames ohio that that's says also... iowa not ohio <coughs> oh shit it's okay my bad it's okay i'm tired Iowa State University, Ames, Iowa. I don't know why I said Ohio. Ohio. But anyways, Ames is where the Ames strain came from. Right. And you would know that if you listened to the last part. But I understand if you just came straight to this part, because the last part was a lot. So anyways, many scientists claim that the quick destruction of the anthrax spores collection in Iowa eliminated crucial evidence useful for the investigation. A precise match between the strain of anthrax used in attacks and a strain in the collection would have offered hints as to when bacteria had been isolated and perhaps as to how widely it had been distributed by researchers. Oh, two researchers, sorry. So, these genetic clues could have given investigators the evidence necessary to identify the perpetrators. But they destroyed it. Yep. That's great. Why do they always do that? Why I don't know. Do all the evidence always gets destroyed. So, immediately after the anthrax attacks, White House officials pressured FBI Director Robert Mueller to publicly blame them on al-Qaeda following the September 11 attacks. During the president's morning intelligence briefings, Mueller was beaten up for not producing proof that the killer spores were the handiwork of Osama bin Laden, according to a former aide. Uh, 
quote, they really wanted to blame somebody in the Middle East, end quote, the retired senior FBI official stated. The FBI knew early on that the anthrax used was of a consistency requiring sophisticated equipment and was unlikely to have been produced in some cave. So, like, some cave over in the Middle East or something. Mm -hmm. At the same time, President Bush and Vice President Cheney, in public statements, speculated about the possibility of a link between the anthrax attacks and al-Qaeda. The Guardian reported in early October that American scientists had implicated Iraq as the source of the anthrax. The next day, the Wall Street Journal editorialized that al-Qaeda perpetrated the mailings with Iraq, the source of the anthrax. A few days later, John McCain suggested on The Late Show with David Letterman that the anthrax may have come from Iraq, and the next week, ABC News did a series of reports stating that three or four, depending on the report, sources had identified bentonite as an ingredient in the anthrax preparations implicating Iraq. Statements by the White House and public officials quickly proved that there was no bentonite in the attack anthrax. Quote, no test ever found or even suggested the presence of bentonite. The claim was just concocted from the start. It just never happened, end quote. Nonetheless, a few conservative journalists repeated ABC's bentonite report for several years, even after the invasion of Iraq proved there was no involvement. So they did an invasion later on, and there was no involvement with Iraq. Gotcha. So Barbara Hatch Rosenberg, a molecular biologist at the State University of New York at Purchase and chairwoman of a biologist, chairwoman of a biological weapons panel at the federation of american scientists and others began claiming that the attack might be the work of a rogue cia agent in october of 2001 as soon as it became known that the aim strain of anthrax had been used in the attacks and she told the fbi that the name of the most likely person Hmm. on october 21st 2001 she made similar statements to the biological and toxic weapons convention in geneva In December 2001, she published a compilation of evidence and comments on the source of the mailed anthrax via the website of the Federation of American Scientists, or FAS, claiming that the attacks were perpetrated with the unwitting assistance of a sophisticated government program. Trying to blame it on the government here. Yeah. I feel like everybody always tries to blame everything on the government. Yeah. It's always like, oh, the government's behind it. Yeah. She discussed the case with reporters from the New York Times. On January 4, 2002, Nicholas Kristof of the New York Times published a column titled Profile of a Killer, stating, I think I know who sent out the anthrax last fall. Hmm. So people are just claiming that they know, they know, they know. Yeah. They don't know. Nobody knows. Yet. For months, Rosenberg gave speeches and stated her beliefs to many reporters from around the world. She posted... Analysis of the anthrax attacks to the FAS website on January 17th of 2002. So this lady's out here trying, trying to find, saying that she knows who did this and all Mm -hmm. that stuff and like posting it everywhere. Yeah. So basically spreading like false information. Mm -hmm. It's very annoying. Yeah. So on February 5th of 2002, she published, Is the FBI Dragging Its Feet? In response, the FBI stated, there is no prime suspect in this case at this time. I don't think people realize that, like, investigation work takes a while. Yeah, it does. Like, we're not freaking computers, we're humans. Yeah, it takes time to find stuff. Yeah, it's not easy, especially with something like this. Mm -hmm. I mean, the biology lesson I gave you in part one, like, all the crap that they had to do to try and test it and, like, duplicate it and, like, try to figure out was the anthrax weaponized or not it's just so much like there's way more to it than everybody really thinks yeah the washington post reported fbi officials over the last week have flatly discounted dr rosenberg's claims so the fbi's like no she doesn't know what she's talking about. right on june 13th of 2002 rosenberg posted the anthrax case what the fbi knows to the fas website On June 18th of 2002, she presented her theories to Senate staffers working for Senators Daschle and Leahy, which are the two senators that the powdered anthrax was sent to, but Mm -hmm. never made it to. Mm -hmm. 
So on June 25th, the FBI publicly searched Stephen Hatfield's apartment, and he became a household name. So Stephen Hatfield, if you remember, his girlfriend from Malaysia sent him porn and a check. Mm, mm-hmm. So the FBI also pointed out that Hatfield had agreed to the search and is not considered a suspect. American Prospect and Salon.com reported Hatfield is not a suspect in the anthrax case, the FBI says. So it's like as soon as the FBI says something, reporters are like making it a headline. Right. On August 3rd, 2002, Rosenberg told the media that the FBI asked her if a team of government scientists could be trying to frame Stephen J. Hatfield. Who knows if that's true or not. Yeah. So in August 2002, Attorney General John Ashcroft labeled Hatfield a person of interest in a press conference, though no charges were brought against him. Hatfield is a virologist, and he vehemently denied that he had anything to do with the anthrax mailings and sued the FBI, the Justice Department, Ashcroft, Alberto Gonzalez, and others for violating his constitutional rights and for violating the Privacy Act. And on June 27, 2008, the Department of Justice announced that it would settle Hatfield's case for $5.8 million. I mean, that makes sense, though. Yeah, they're bashing him, and he's like, no. I I would sue, too. Yeah. Hatfield also sued the New York Times and its columnist, Nicholas D. Kristoff, as well as Donald Foster, Vanity Fair, Reader's Digest, and Vassar College for Defamation. The case against the New York Times was initially dismissed, but it was reinstated on appeal. And the dismissal was upheld by the appeals court on July 14th of 2008 on the basis that Hatfield was a public figure and malice had not been proven. The Supreme Court rejected an appeal on December 15th, 2008. So he didn't get anything from the New York Times. Hatfield's lawsuits against Vanity Fair and Reader's Digest were settled out of court on February 2007, but no detail- details were made public, so they must have paid him some type of money. Probably. The statement released by Hatfield's lawyer said, Dr. Hatfield's lawsuit has now been resolved to the mutual satisfaction of all parties. So he was like, you pay me this money and I'll stop suing you. And they were like, okay. Okay. Win-win for everybody, huh? Yep. So, remember Bruce Ivins, the guy I said we talk about later? Mm-hmm. Well, we're here. We're here. Um, so learn, let's learn about, learn yeah. me some stuff about him. So Bruce Ivins had worked for 18 years at the government's biodefense labs at Fort Derrick and was a top biodefense researcher. The Associated Press reported on August 1st, 2008, that he had apparently committed suicide at the age of 62. Dang. Yeah. Sad, for sure. Yeah. It was widely reported that the FBI was about to press charges against him, but the evidence was largely circumstantial, and the grand jury in Washington reported that it was not ready to issue an indictment. Rush D. Holt Jr. represented the district where the anthrax letters were mailed, and he said that circumstantial evidence was not enough and asked FBI Director Robert S. Mueller to appear before Congress to provide an account of the investigation. So, Ivan's death left two unanswered questions. Scientists familiar with germ warfare said that there was no evidence that he had the skills to turn anthrax into an inhalable powder. Alan Zelikoff aided the FBI investigation and stated, I don't think a vaccine specialist could do it. This is aerosol physics, not biology. Yeah. W. Russell Byrne worked in the bacteriology division of the Fort Derrick. I think I'm pronouncing that wrong. It's Detrick. Fort Detrick. I've been saying Derrick this oh, whole dang. time. I just realized there's a T in it. Oh, that's... Okay. Unless that was a mistake. Hold on. Now I gotta find the other one. Nope. It's Fort Detrick. I've been saying Fort Derrick this whole time. Is it Detrick or is it Dietrich? I don't know. Just say Derrick. It's fine. I'm not saying Derrick now that I know that that's wrong. Or Detrick. That's what I'll say. Okay. Okay. Well, interesting stuff right there. <laughs> so, um, Russell Byrne said that Bruce Ivins was hounded by FBI agents who raided his home twice, and he was hospitalized for depression during that time. 
According to Byrne and local police, Bruce was removed from his workplace out of fears that he might harm himself or others. Quote, I think he was just psychologically exhausted by the whole process. There were, are people who you just know are ticking time bombs. He was not one of them. End quote. On August 6, 2008, federal prosecutors declared Bruce the sole perpetrator of the crime when U.S. Attorney Jeffrey A. Taylor laid out the case to the public. The genetically unique parent material of the anthrax spores was created and solely maintained by Dr. Ivins. But other experts disagreed, including biological warfare and anthrax expert Merrill Nass, who stated, let me reiterate, no matter how good the microbial forensics may be, they can only at best link the anthrax to a particular strain in lab. They cannot link it to any individual. Hmm. So there was a certain tube that we're going to talk about, a flask, and it was linked to that lab that he was at. But that doesn't necessarily mean it was him. That's right. what... Um, That's basically what they are saying. Right, yeah. yeah. So at least 10 scientists had regular access to the laboratory and its anthrax stock, and possibly quite a few more, counting visitors from other institutions and workers at laboratories in Ohio and New Mexico that had received anthrax samples from the flask. The FBI later claimed to have identified 419 people at Fort Detrick and other locations who had access to the lab where flask RMR-1029 was stored or had received samples from that flask. So that is the flask that they're talking about. Okay. Um, Bruce told a mental health counselor for more than a year before the anthrax attacks that he was interested in a young woman who lived out of town and that he had mixed poison which he took with him when he went to watch her play in a soccer match. If she lost, he was going to poison her, said the counselor, who treated Bruce at Frederick Clinic four or five times in mid-2000. The heck? Yeah. What the heck? She said that Bruce emphasized that he was a skillful scientist who knew how to do things without people finding out. Yikes. That's scary. The counselor was so alarmed by his emotionless description of a specific homicidal plan that she immediately alerted the head of her clinic and a psychiatrist who had treated Bruce, as well as the Frederick Police Department. She said that the police told her that nothing could be done because she did not have the woman's address or the woman's last name. In 2008, Bruce told a different therapist that he planned to kill his co-workers and go out in a blaze of glory. Nice. The therapist stated in an application for a restraining order that Bruce had a history of dating to his graduate days of homicidal threats, actions, plans, threats, and actions towards therapists. Dr. David Irwin, his psychiatrist, called him homicidal sociopathic with clear intentions. Yikes. Yeah. So this guy was messed up. Yeah, he was pretty messed up. Whether he did this or not, he's pretty fucked up. Mm-hmm. But I think he was their main person of interest for this mm -hmm. according to the report on the amerithrax investigation published by the department of justice bruce engaged in actions and made statements that indicated a consciousness of guilt he took environmental samples in his laboratory without authorization and decontaminated decontaminated areas in which he had worked without reporting his activities he also threw away a book about secret codes, which described methods similar to those used in the anthrax letters. Bruce threatened other scientists, made equivocal statements about his possible involvement in a conversation with an acquaintance, and put together outlandish theories in an effort to shift the blame for the anthrax mailings to people close to him. The FBI said that Bruce's justifications for his actions after the environmental sampling as well as his explanations for a subsequent sampling, contradicted his explanation for the motors, motives of the sampling. How many times can you say sampling? Sampling, sampling, sampling. So according to the Department of Justice, Flask RMR 1029, which was created and controlled by Bruce, was used to create the murder weapon. Hmm. In 2002, researchers did not believe it was possible to distinguish between anthrax variants. But in January 2002, Ivins suggested that DNA sequencing should show differences in the genetics of anthrax mutations, which would allow the source to be identified. So he was basically teaching what would get him caught. Mm-hmm. Dang. Well, 
what would get him to be a person of interest anyway right so despite researchers advising the fbi that this may not have been possible bruce tutored agents on how to recognize them it was considered cutting edge at the time and this technique is now commonplace and used in February 2002, Bruce volunteered to provide samples from several variants of the AIM strain in order to compare their morphs. He submitted two test tube slants, each from four samples of the AIM strain in his collection, and two of the slams, slants were from Flask RMR-1029. Although the slants from Flask RMR-1029 were later reported to be a positive match, all eight slants were reportedly in the wrong type of test tube and would therefore not be usable as evidence in court. Yeah, so they weren't put away properly. So then they can't be used as evidence? Yeah. The fuck? On March 29, 2002, Bruce's boss instructed Bruce and others in suits B3 and B4 on how to properly prepare slants for the FBI repository. The subpoena also included instructions on the proper way to prepare slants. When Bruce was told that his February samples did not meet FBIR requirements, he prepared eight new slants. The two new slants prepared from Flask RMR-1029 submitted in April by Bruce did not contain the mutations that were later determined to be in Flask RMR-1029. So he gave them, it seems like he gave them fake yeah, like he's trying and, to cover it up. Yeah, and by slants, I'm pretty sure it means those, like little gla- little glass pieces that you, that you put, put like together and then you put under. Yeah. Okay. So he's like doing it. Like, it seems like he's doing it on purpose. Mm-hmm. And it was reported in April 2004. Henry Hain found a test tube in the lab containing anthrax and contacted Bruce. In an email sent in reply, Bruce reportedly told him it was probably RMR-1029 and for Hain to forward a sample to the FBI. Doubts regarding the reliability of the FBI test were later raised when the FBI tested Hain's sample in a further one from Hain's test tube, one tested negative and one positive, to match the anthrax. Mm -hmm. A DOJ summary report of February 19, 2010 said that the evidence suggested that Dr. Ivins obstructed the investigation either by providing a submission which was not in compliance with the subpoena or worse, that he deliberately submitted a false sample. Just like Mm. we said. Yeah. Records released under the Freedom of Information Act in 2011 show that Ivins provided four sets of samples from 2002 to 2004, twice the number the FBI reported. Three of the four sets tested positive for the morphs, so matching the anthrax. Mm-hmm. And the FBI stated that at a group therapy session on July 9, 2008, Dr. Ivins was particularly upset. He revealed to the counselor and psychologist leading the group that, and other members of the group that he was a suspect in the anthrax investigation and that he was angry at investigators, the government, and the system in general. He said he was not going to face the death penalty, but instead had a plan to take out co-workers and other individuals who had wronged him. He noted that it was possible with a plan to commit murder and not make a mess. He stated that he had a bulletproof vest and a list of co-workers who had wronged him and said that he was going to obtain a Glock firearm from his son within the next day because federal agents were watching him and he could not obtain a weapon on his own. He added that he was going to go out in a blaze of glory. Hmm. I don't know about you, but he sounds pretty guilty. Off the rails to me. Mm-hmm. So while in a mental hospital, Bruce made menacing phone calls to his social worker, Jean Dooley, on July 11th and 12th. In the letters sent to the media, the characters A and T were sometimes bolded or highlighted by tracing over, according to the FBI, suggesting that the letters contained a hidden code. Mm-hmm. I remember he threw books away mm-hmm. and his the fbi found books in his garbage about hidden codes codes yeah. yeah coding so some believe the letters to the new york post and tom brokaw contained contained a hidden message in such highlighted characters and then i just put in here that it shows where it's highlighted mm-hmm. it really doesn't make any sense though it doesn't T-T-T-A-T-T-A-T. 
don't know. That doesn't make any sense to me, but maybe it made sense to him. Maybe. According to the FBI, summary report... Okay. According to the FBI, a summary report issued on February 19, 2010, following the search of Bruce's home, cars, and office on November 1, 2007, investigators began examining his trash. A week later, just after 1 a.m. on the morning of November 8th, the FBI stated that Bruce was observed throwing away a copy of a book entitled Godel Escher Bach, an internal golden braid, published by Douglas Hofstadter in 1979 in a 1992 issue of American Scientist Journal, which contained an article entitled The, Lin- the Linguistics of DNA and discussed, among other things, codons and hidden messages the book godel escher bach contains a lengthy description of the encoding decoding procedures including an illustration of hiding a message within a message by bolding certain characters excuse you for real according to the fbi summary report When they lifted out just the bolded letters, investigators got what we discussed a second ago, T-T-T-A-A-T-T-A-T, an apparent hidden message. And, um, yeah, so three-letter groups are codons, meaning that each sequence of three nucleic acids will code for a specific amino acid. So, T-T-T stands for phenylalanine. Lanine, AAT, asparagine, mm-hmm. and TAT, tyrosine. Okay. I don't know what any of those are, but they are amino acids. Yes. And I'm not, I'm not a, a biologist or anything, so I don't know. They're just amino acids. Yep. <laughs> the Used FBI in some- science. Huh? They're used in science. Yeah. Well, I know that, but I'm just saying, like, I don't know what those, what yeah. they do or anything like that. Yeah. So, the FBI summary report proceeds to say, from this analysis, two possible hidden, me- from this analysis, two possible hidden meanings emerged. FNY, a verbal assault on New York, and two, PAT, the nickname of um, Bruce's former colleague, number two. Oh, you forgot you forgot to add the FNY. So like um the phenylalanine is a single letter designator F. And then oh, yeah. asparagine asparagine single letter designator N and tyrosine single letter designator Y. That's where they got the F and Y from. Yep. Like literally fuck New York. Pretty much. Is what they're saying. A verbal assault on New York. F and Y. Fuck New York. Or Pat. Which was Dr. Ivan's former colleague. Thanks for explaining that. You're welcome. <laughs> just just helping out. <laughs> so Bruce was known to have a dislike for New York City, and four of the media letters had been sent to New York. The report states that it was obviously impossible for the task force to determine with certainty that either of these two translations was correct. However, the key point to the investigative analysis is that there is a hidden message, not so much what that message is. According to the FBI, Bruce showed a fascination with codes and also had an interest in secrets and hidden messages and was familiar with biochemical codons. Experts have suggested that the anthrax mailings included a number of indications that the mailer was trying to avoid harming anyone with warning letters. Examples None of the intended receptants of the letters were infected. The seams on the backs of the envelopes were taped over, as if to make certain that the powders could not escape through open seams. The letters were folded with a pharmaceutical fold, which was used for centuries to safely contain the transport doses of powdered medicines, and currently to safely hold trace evidence. The media letters provided medical advice. Take penicillin now. The Senate letters informed the recipient that the powder was anthrax. We have this anthrax. At the time of the mailings, it was generally believed that such powders could not escape from a sealed envelope except through two open corners where a letter opener is inserted, which had been taped shut. In June 2008, 
Bruce was involuntarily committed to a psychiatric hospital. The FBI stated that during a June 5th group therapy session there, Bruce had a conversation with an unnamed witness during which he made a series of statements about the anthrax mailings that the FBI said could be best characterized as non-denial denials. When asked about the anthrax attacks and whether he could have had anything to do with them, the FBI said Bruce admitted he suffered from a loss of memory, stating that he would wake up dressed and wondered if he had gone out during the night. Some of his responses allegedly included the following selected quotes. I can tell you I don't have it in my heart to kill anybody. I do not have any recollection of ever have doing anything like that. As a matter of fact, I don't... I don't have no clue how to, how to make a bioweapon, and I don't want to know. I can tell you I am not a killer at heart. If I found out I was involved in some way, and, and I don't think of myself as a vicious, a nasty, evil person. I don't like to hurt people accidentally in, in any way, and wouldn't do that, and I in my right mind, wouldn't do it. And then he laughed. But it's still, but I still feel a responsibility because um, the RMR 1029 flax containing the anthrax pores wasn't locked up at the time. In an interview with a confidential human resource, which took place on January, took place on January 8th, 2008, the FBI said the CHR told FBI agents that since Ivan's last interview with the FBI, Ivans had, on occasion, spontaneously declared at work, I can never intentionally kill or hurt someone. So basically, he just said he wasn't that type of person. Yeah. But he also said he had bouts of memory loss. Mm-hmm. So who knows? And from what we've heard from therapists and stuff, he is an evil person. Yeah, for sure. So after the FBI announced that Bruce acted alone, many people with a broad range of political views, some of whom were colleagues of Bruce's, expressed doubts. Reasons cited for these doubts included, include that Bruce was only one of a hundred people who could have worked with the vial used in the attacks, and that the FBI couldn't place him near the New Jersey mailbox either, from which the anthrax was mailed. Hmm. The one out of 600 that tested positive for anthrax. Right. The FBI's own genetic consultant, Claire Fraser Leggett, stated that the failure to find any anthrax spores in Bruce's house, vehicle, or on any of his belongings seriously undermined the case. But if he's a scientist, he would know how to clean up. Like, right. Noting unanswered questions about the FBI's scientific tests and lack of peer review, Jeffrey Adamovitz, how did we say that? Adamovitz? Yeah, that. One of Ivan's supervisors in USAMRIID's bacteriology division stated, I'd say the vast majority of people at Fort Detrick think he had nothing to do with it. More than 200 colleagues attended his memorial service following his death. Alternative theories proposed included FBI incompetence, that Syria or Iraq directed the attacks or that similar to some 9-11 conspiracy theories that the U.S. government knew in advance that the attacks would occur. Because hmm. some people say that the government knew that 9-11 was going to happen. Yeah. So, Senator Patrick Leahy, um, the guy that was going to get the letter, uh, said that the FBI had not produced convincing evidence in the case. Uh, the Washington Post called for an independent investigation in the case, saying that the reporters and scientists were poking holes in the case. On September, September, on September 17, 2008, Senator Patrick Leahy told FBI Director Robert Mueller during testimony before the Judiciary Committee, which Leahy chairs, that he did not believe Army scientist Bruce Ivins acted alone in the 2001 anthrax attacks stating, I believe there are others involved, either as accessories before or accessories after the fact. I believe that there are others out there. I believe that there are others who could be charged with murder. Tom Daschle, the other Democratic senator target, believes Bruce was the sole culprit. Hmm. So some people think he did it alone, some people think he had a partner. 
Interesting. Although the FBI matched the genetic origin of the attack spores to the spores in Ivan's flask RMR 1029, the spores within that flax, flask did not have the same silicon chemical fingerprint as the spores in the attack letters. Here we go again with the silicon. Going back and forth. Mm-hmm. The implication is that spores taken out of flask RMR 1029 had been used to grow new spores for the mailings. So, basically saying that he created it out of the original flask. Mm. And that's why it didn't match. Gotcha. On April 22, 2010, the U.S. National Research Council, the operating arm of the National Academy of Scientists, convened in a review committee that heard testimony from Henry Hain, a microbiologist who was formerly employed at the Army's Biodefense Laboratory in Maryland, where Bruce Ivins had worked. Hain told the panel that it was impossible that the deadly spores had been produced undetected in Bruce's laboratory as maintained by the FBI. He testified that at least a year of intensive work would have been required using the equipment at the Army lab to produce the quantity of spores contained in the letters and that such an intensive effort could not have escaped the attention of colleagues. Hain also told the panel that lab technicians who work closely with Bruce have told him they saw no such work. But, like, what if he stayed after? Right. I don't know. I don't know. Can you do that at an army facility? Do you work overtime? I don't know. I don't know. I don't work at an army facility, so I'm I... also not a scientist, no so I don't know. <laughs> he stated further that biological containment measures where Bruce worked, were inadequate to prevent anthrax spores from floating out of the laboratory into animal cages and offices. You'd have dead animals or dead people, Haynes said. So, saying he wouldn't have been able to contain the anthrax. Yeah, but it's a, a I mean, you're in a laboratory. They, yeah. I think they do pretty well at, at containing things that they don't want to get out. Right. That's like their job. Pretty much, yeah. So, according to Science Magazine, Hain made his remarks by saying that he himself had no experience making anthrax stocks. So, Science Magazine's basically saying, you don't know what you're talking about. Right. Science Magazine provides additional comments by Adam Drix of Lo Loyola, who stated that the amount of anthrax in the letters could be made in a number of days. Emails by Bruce state, we can presently make one trillion spores per week. Dang. Yeah. And the New York Times reported on May 7, 2002, that the Leahy letter contained 0.871 grams of anthrax powder, equivalent to 871 billion spores. Dang. In a technical article to be published in the Journal of Bioterrorism and Biodefense in 2011, Three scientists argued that the preparation of the spores did require a high level of sophistication, contrary to the position taken by federal authorities that the material would have been unsophisticated. So, when they said it couldn't have been made in some cave somewhere. Oh, yeah. The paper is largely based on the high level of tin detected in tests of the mailed anthrax, and the tin may have been used to encapsulate the spores, which required processing not possible in laboratories to which Bruce had access. Um, tin is a chemical element with the symbol SN and atomic number 50. Tin is a silvery colored metal that characteristically has a faint yellow hue. Good gravy. <laughs> I cannot talk. You know, you know so tin, tin containers. Yeah, tin. Like the old ones your grandma has that has the Christmas pictures yeah, on it. Yeah, they're metal. They're yeah, yeah. Like the cookie tins. Yeah, or like that's what popcorn I'm tins. So, according to the scientific article, this raises the possibility that Bruce was not the perpetrator or did not act alone. Earlier in the investigation, the FBI had named tin as a substance. Of interest, but the final report makes no mention of it and fails to address the high tin content. Once again, here we are with all Going these tests. Back and forth about what's in it, what's not in it. The chairwoman of the National Academy of Sciences panel that reviewed the FBI's scientific work and the director of a separate review 
by the Government Accountability Office said that the issues raised by the paper should be addressed. Other scientists, such as Jonathan L. Keel, a retired Air Force scientist who worked on anthrax for many years, did not agree with the author's assessments, saying that the tin might be a random containment rather than a clue to complex processing. Keel said that the tin might simply be picked up by the spores as a result of the use of metal lab containers, although he had not tested that idea. That's true. That's true. In 2011, the chief of the bacteriology division at the Army Laboratory, Patricia Warsham, said it lacked the facilities in 2001 to make the kind of spores in the letters. In 2011, the government conceded that the equipment required was not available in the lab, calling into question a key pillar of the FBI's case that Bruce had produced the anthrax in his lab. So, they were going after him all this time, and he may not even be guilty. Yeah. I mean, he still sounds like a mentally ill person. person. Yeah, Yeah, but... According to Warshan, the lab's equipment for drying spores, a machine the size of a refrigerator, was not in containment so that it would be expected that non-immunized personnel in that area would have become ill. So it wasn't like sealed up or anything, so anybody could have got anthrax poisoning. Yet they didn't. Yeah. Which was weird. Mm-hmm. So colleagues of Bruce at the lab have asserted that he couldn't have grown the quantity of anthrax used in the letters without their noticing it. A spokesman for the Justice Department said that the investigators continue to believe that Bruce acted alone. Congressman Rush Holt, whose district in New Jersey includes a mailbox from which anthrax letters are believed to have been mailed, called for an investigation of the anthrax attacks by Congress or by an independent commission that he proposed in a bill entitled Anthrax Attacks Investigation Act, H.R. 1248. Other members of Congress have also called for an independent investigation. An official of the U.S. administration said that in March 2010 that President Barack Obama probably would veto legislation authorizing the next budget for U.S. intelligence agencies if it called for a new investigation into the 2001 anthrax attacks, as such an investigation would undermine public confidence in the FBI probe. So they weren't going to allow an investigation because it would kill the FBI's pride. Yeah. Rude. In a letter to congressional leaders, Peter Orzag, the director of Office of Management and Budget at the time, wrote that an investigation would be duplicative and expressed concern about the appearance and president involved when Congress commissions an agency inspector general to replicate a criminal investigation, but did not list the anthrax investigation as an issue that was serious enough to advise the president to veto the entire bill. So they're fighting about the veto, too. Mm -hmm. No reason, but... So, in what appears to have been a response to lingering skepticism on September 16, 2008, the FBI asked the National Academy of Sciences to conduct an independent review of the scientific evidence that led the agency to implicate U.S. Army researcher Bruce Ivins in the anthrax litter attacks of 2001. So they want these people to look over this investigation, basically. Mm-hmm. However, despite taking this action, Director Mueller said that the scientific methods applied in the investigation had already been vetted by the research community, though the involvement of several dozen non-agency scientists. The NAS review officially got underway on October 24th of 2009. And while the scope of the project included the consideration of facts and data surrounding the investigation of the 2001 mailings, as well as a review of principles and methods used by the FBI, the NAS committee was not given the task to undertake an assessment of the probe probative value of the scientific evidence or in any specific component of the investigation, prosecution, or civil litigation, nor to offer any view on the guilt or innocence of any of the involved people. In mid-2009, the NAS committee held public sessions 
which presentations were made by scientists, including scientists from the FBI laboratories. In September 2009, scientists including Paul Keem of Northern Arizona University, Joseph Michael of Sandia National Laboratory, and Peter Weber of Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory presented their findings. In one of the presentations, scientists reported that they did not find any silica particles on the outside of the spores, i.e. there was no weaponization, and that only some of the spores in the anthrax letters contained silicon inside their spore coats. Hmm. One of the spores was still inside the mother germ, yet it already had silicon inside its spore coat. So silicon wasn't added? No. It wasn't weaponized? In October 2010, the FBI submitted materials to NAS that it had not previously provided. Included in the new materials were results of analysis performed on environmental samples collected from an overseas site. Those analyses yielded the evidence of the AIM strain in some samples. NAS recommended a review of those investigations. The NAS committee released its report on February 15, 2011, concluding that it was impossible to reach any definitive conclusion about the origins of the anthrax in the letters based solely on the available scientific evidence. So, basically, they still can't figure out where it came from or who done it. The report also challenged the FBI and U.S. Justice Department's conclusion that a single spore batch of anthrax maintained by Bruce at his laboratory at Fort Detrick in Maryland was the parent material for the spores in the anthrax letters. So they were basically going against what they said. Mm -hmm. Dozens of buildings were contaminated with anthrax as a result of the mailings. The companies in charge of the cleanup and decontaminating of the buildings in New York City including ABC headquarters in a midtown Manhattan building that was part of the Rockefeller Center and was home to the New York Post and Fox News, were Biorecovery Corporation of Woodside, New York, and Biorecovery Services of America, based in Ohio. Biorecovery provided the lab and equipment such as HEPA-filtered negative pressure air scrubbers, HEPA vacuums, respirators, cyclone foggers, and decontamination foam, licensed by the Sandia National Laboratories. 93 bags of anthrax-contaminated mail were removed from the New York Post alone. Dang. People weren't getting their mail. Nope. Well, I guess it was probably mailed to the New York Post. Mm Mm-hmm. So, the New York Post wasn't getting their mail. Wasn't getting their mail. The decontamination of the Brentwood Postal Facility took 26 months and costed $130 million. Damn. The Hamilton, New Jersey postal facility remained closed until March 2005. Its cleanup cost at $65 million. Dang. The United States Environmental Protection Agency led the collaborative effort to clean up the Hart Senate office building, where Senate Majority Leader Tom Daschle's office was located, as well as the Ford office building and several other locations around the Capitol. It used $27 million of its funds for its Superfund program on the Capitol Hill anthrax cleanup. One FBI document said the total damage exceeded $1 billion. Dang. The anthrax attacks, as well as the September 11, 2001 attacks, spurred significant increases in U.S. government funding for biological warfare research and preparedness. For example... Biowarfare-related funding at the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases increased by $1.5 billion in 2003. In 2004, Congress passed the Project BioShield Act, which provides $5.6 billion over 10 years for the purchase of new vaccines and drugs. Immediately after 9-11, well before the mailing of any of the letters involved in the anthrax attacks, the White House prudently began distributing ciprofloxacin, the only drug approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration for the treatment of inhalational anthrax to senior staffers. So the manufacturer, Bayer Pharmaceuticals, agreed to provide the United States with 100,000 doses for 95 cents per dose, a cut in the price from $1.74. 
Well. The Canadian government had previously overridden the buyer patent, and the U.S. was threatening the same measure if buyer did not agree to negotiate the price. Numerous corporations offered to supply drugs for free, contingent on the Food and Drug Administration approving their products for anthrax treatment. They included Bristol-Myers Squibb, Johnson & Johnson, and GlaxoSmithKline. Eli Lilly and Pfizer also offered to provide drugs at cost. Hmm. hmm. They offer COVID vaccines, right? Mm-hmm. The attack led to the widespread confiscation and curtailment of U.S. mail, especially to U.S. media companies. Checks, bills, letters, and packages simply stopped arriving. For many people and businesses that had resisted the cultural shift to email, this was the moment that pushed them online. After the 9-11 attacks and the subsequent anthrax mailings, lawmakers were pressed for legislation to combat further terrorist acts. Under heavy pressure from then-Attorney General John D. Ashcroft, a bipartisan compromise in the House Judiciary Committee allowed legislation for the Patriot Act to move forward for full consideration later that month. A theory that Iraq was behind the attacks, based upon purported evidence that the powder was weaponized, and some reports of alleged meetings between 9-11 conspirators and Iraqi officials may have contributed to the hysteria, which ultimately enabled the 2003 invasion of Iraq. Years after the attack, several anthrax victims reported lingering health problems, including fatigue, shortness of breath, and memory loss. A 2004 study proposed that the total number of people harmed by the anthrax attacks of 2001 should be raised to 68. A postal inspector, William Poliskic, became severely ill and disabled after removing an anthrax-contaminated air filter from the Brentwood Mail Facility on October 19, 2001. Although his doctors Tyler Simon and Gary Kirkvillette believed that the illness was caused by anthrax exposure, blood tests did not find anthrax bacteria or antibodies, and therefore the CDC does not recognize it as a case of inhalational anthrax. And that is it. But closed, that's it. So... They don't know who did it. They don't know who did it. They don't know where the anthrax came from, really. They think they do. But they don't. Yep. Dang. Bruce Ivins killed himself, so we don't really know anything from there. They don't really have any other suspects. Stephen Hatfield sued for defamation, Mm -hmm. so he won. He's not the criminal. It was probably Ivins. Bruce Ivins. I mean, but we will. I never could see know that because he's dead. Yeah, that, and I could just see him. But like, it probably wasn't just him. It was probably him and like other people. Well, I'm just saying, like he could have killed himself from all the pressure too. Doesn't That's necessarily true. mean that he's guilty. That's true. Innocent until proven guilty, right? Yep. I don't know. On some of these cases, I'm like. I don't know about that. Don't know about it. Alright, guys. Sorry for all the stuttering it's okay. on this episode. I'm having trouble reading today. That's okay. Every, we have our days. Today is not Some my day. Some days are better than others. Well, if you still like me after these anthrax episodes, you can go to our Patreon. Yeah, there's some good stuff on the Patreon. We talk about it all the time. Yep. If you don't know already... There's, what What was was that? That That was my throat. (laughs) There is unedited versions of our um, episodes if you want to see, like, listen to kind of behind the scenes. Bonus episodes. Bonus episodes, mukbangs. Stickers. Stickers. We'll send you out some stickers. And I'm thinking about doing a special surprise for our first few, um... Patrons, if you go subscribe to the Patreon, hmm. if you're one of the first, maybe we'll send you something a little extra special. Alright, well, leave us a review if you're listening and if you made it this far. Yeah. 
on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Spotify. Or wherever else you can leave us a review. Follow us on our socials. Everything yep. will be linked in the show notes. Everything is pretty much at TCST underscore podcast. Yep. If you have any suggestions for cases or story times, send us an email at tcstpodcast at gmail.com. Just make sure you put case idea or story time idea in the subject line. Yep. And maybe we'll, uh, you'll be talked about. Yep. And we'll shout you out, too, if you send us the case suggestion. Yep, yep, yep. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.